Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. I'm very excited and privileged to have with me, joining me on the podcast today, Professor Megan Davis. Megan is the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Indigenous at the University of New South Wales, Sydney, as well as, the, as well as a professor of law. She's a renowned constitutional lawyer and public law expert, focusing on the advocacy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people. Her work extends internationally through her role in the United Nations, focusing on global Indigenous rights in 2017. And then again in 2019, Megan was elected by the United Nations Human Rights Council uh, to the uh, UN Expert Mechanism on Rights of Indigenous People based in Geneva. Uh, she's currently serving as its chair. Professor Davis was named Australia's most influential woman in, Australian, in the Australian Financial Review Qantas 100 Women of Influence Awards and was awarded the overall winner of the Public Policy Section. She was named in 2017 as uh, by Australian Financial Review's annual power list and was ranked number seven on the cultural power list for her work on constitutional reform and delivering the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Professor Davis holds a Bachelor of Laws, a Bachelor of Arts in Australian History from the University of Queensland, and a Graduate Diploma in Legal Practice, Master of Laws in International Laws, a Doctor of Philosophy from the, uni- uh, the Australian National University. Uh, Megan, welcome. How are you today? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really well. It's um, a bit cold here in Sydney, but I'm good, thank you. Yeah, well, we, we've we've we're into sort of the winter. Although, whilst we're through the shortest day, it always does still feel a little bit colder. But what you know, what I can say is, I was fortunate in the weekend. I managed to get up to northern New South Wales to a lovely spot called Hastings Point, uh, just north of uh, Byron Bay. Uh, lovely, 24 degrees. Managed to get out in the water. Um, what a great piece of paradise! Have you spent any time up that way? No, I haven't. I, I haven't. It sounds lovely. I was in Perth for the State of Origin. So, right. Okay. Um, I spent my weekend over there. Did you? Did you? Are you team lost? <laughs> Yeah, they did, unfortunately. Okay, is it is it would it be fair to say uh, they were the victims of some some rather harsh calls, or was it just the the better team won on the day? I can't, I can't actually say that because I'm I'm a board I'm a board member of the Australian Rugby League Commission, so um, I, I I I can't can't answer that question. All I can say is that you know one more game. Yes, yes, all right. It's, it's not all yeah, lost. Yeah, so. okay, it's not all lost, and, and there's always <laughs> next season to look forward to. <laughs> all right, let's let's talk. I, 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 we'll be fine. We'll be oh, fine. look, I'm, I'm sure. You know, sometimes um, teams just need a need, need something like that to pick them up, and then they they get going. They leave the best <laughs> for last. Right, let's yeah, uh, yeah, let's later. talk matters constitutional. Okay. Um, what I was uh, what I was hoping is you you, you could help um, uh, with the listeners, um, some of which uh, won't know a lot about Australia's constitution at all. Um, some will know um, quite a bit, but can you give us a, a a summary of the constitutional framework that um, has constituted Australia as the as the Commonwealth state that it is today? Um, what's the constitution made up of? 
Yeah, so we have a written constitution that was drafted in the 1890s and um, came into force in 1901. Um, you know, most constitutional laws, except it's a pretty robust constitution. We've never had any major constitutional crisis, except for obviously 1975 and got Whitlam um, around the interpretation of the constitution. Um, but it, but it's kind of a very functional constitution. It distributes powers across the federation. So of course, Australia before the federation was the number of colonial parliaments and um, colonies um, who all came together in, in a union, of course, um, and federated um, and retained various powers for themselves and conferred various powers exclusively on the Commonwealth and then there's a lot of shared powers across the Federation. So it's kind of functional in that kind of distribution of power across the continent. Um, in relation to... Indigenous peoples, um, we weren't involved in the drafting of the constitution and the con the original constitution that came into um, came into place in 1901 excluded Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples from uh, uh, lawmaking in terms of the federal parliament, um, and it also excluded Aboriginal populations from the counting of the national population figures. Um, so, so, you know, from the outset in terms of Indigenous rights, this was a, a constitution that very much excluded um, First Nations people from the legal and political arrangements. Now, Megan, I, I do want to focus throughout this podcast on uh, the, the issue of the indige of Indigenous people, but I, I do want to ask this, going back to uh, 1901 or 1900, um, other than... Queen Victoria, who's obviously a woman, uh, approving the constitution because that was her role um, or part of her role or involvement at the time. What what was the what role, if any, did did women have in the in the drafting of the constitution and and voting for it? Um, well, women weren't included in it as well. Um, were not included in the drafting of the constitution, um, and so you know it was by and large middle-class men who own property. Um, so, um, so yeah, um, it was um, a pretty gendered kind of framework uh, as well. Um, now, that's not to say there, weren't, there wasn't a history there, a very strong Aboriginal, uh, sorry, <laughs> women's groups um, in, in particularly colonies like South Australia, West Australia and Tasmania and Queensland who were really um, are fierce in, in their advocacy for women's um, recognition of women and women's role, women having a role in the drafting of the constitution, but um, but they but they obviously weren't included. Okay, now um, the the Australian Constitution, the the, the piece of legislation itself, um, covers. Uh, most of the uh, aspects that, you, that one would expect in a, in a constitution for a state, particularly a federal one, it, it covers uh, the parliament, the executive government, the judiciary, uh, trade and finance, the states themselves, and, and uh, introducing any new states. It, w w what's your views on 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 whether it's it's lasted the test of time in terms of you know has it has it served and, and we'll come and, and maybe we'll come back to the issue of of indigenous people because it it, it certainly um, 
uh, I think it's it's beyond doubt it, it hasn't served them. Um, but but how has it served uh, generally the Australian people? Um, I think I think it depends on who you talk to, but I think most Australians would think that it has served the Australian population really well. Um, it's I mean it's not it's not really the easiest constitution to read, and that you need a lot of extraneous material to understand. What the concept, what what the constitution means, but it it has by and large enabled the Commonwealth um, and and the states and territories to understand, um, you know, what their various powers are under the constitution. Um, of course, the primary umpire in disputes has been the High Court of Australia, and the High Court in its jurisprudence has probably. Um, Short up the power of the Commonwealth over the decades um, to the detriment of state and territory power, um, but but I think by and large people believe that it's generally served us well. I think I think one I think there are some areas where it hasn't. One is ha- is the issue of how difficult it is to change the Australian Constitution. So there's only been eight successful attempts in 44 attempts. Which is very very low, um, and um, and then there are other areas where I think people are in agreement that it probably needs to be updated, um, such as in the areas of citizenship um, and who is allowed to stand for election. I think for a long time people have felt there's needed to be some, or there needs to be some recognition of local government who really are the kind of heavy lifters of a lot of the work across the Federation but aren't recognised. Um, and a number of other areas, including, you know, republicanism and four-year terms in the Constitution and all sorts of other things. But I think, by and large, people believe that Australia's rule of law and relative peace um, is, a, is a consequence of that national Constitution. Um, I would say it's actually got a lot more to do with our welfare state and and our commitment to universal health care and other matters but um that's another conversation but i think by and large people would say it's a it's a, the nation pretty well yeah i mean what would you regard as being a, a a good measure or indicator as to you know the success of a constitutional framework you know are there are there things that we could we could look at or point to or consider that might give us some insight as to whether the Australian constitution has, you know, met, it, met, met its purpose? I mean, I think, I think most, well, not most people, I think one, one way of thinking about that is talking to those people who um, are probably the most vulnerable in the Australian community. Um, and I, and I think, I think the answer to that then shines a light on the lack of enshrined constitutional rights or human rights in the Australian Constitution. Um, I think I think one I think probably the best measure of that are vulnerable communities. So Indigenous communities would say they haven't been served well by the Constitution. Um, it's 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 an interesting question. I suppose you know COVID. You know you saw the constitutional framework play out in a positive way, meaning the federal parliament does kind of trump 
fallen states and territories in terms of constitutional power in many areas. But under COVID conditions, they needed the cooperation of states and territories. And I think COVID was a really good test of the constitutional system and allowed states and territories to take control over um, the health um, requirements of each of their jurisdictions in a way that um, they were all Labor governments and um, except for a few, and, and we, have a, we, we had a conservative liberal government, and um, and I think that I think that works quite well. And most Australians would would feel that states had that autonomy because of the Australian Constitution. And to that end, people were grateful. I think um, so. So. Um, so, so then if you look internationally, I suppose, around yardsticks, I think one interesting thing is that most common law countries now have some form of Bill of Rights or Charter of Rights within their political system or legal and legal system, and that provides a kind of check and balance on state power or at least federal power. Um, and Australia, Australia doesn't have that. Um, and so, you know, it's been frequently said in a common law sense that other jurisdictions kind of jurisprudence around rights is becoming increasingly incomprehensible to Australian judges because we don't have a Bill of Rights or a Charter of Rights at that national level. And I think um, that's, that's an important yardstick to when people are reflecting on constitutions um, and how, you know, how well Australia's constitution does or doesn't do um, so I suppose there's some comments I'd make. I, th I think the only other thing is we're quite unusual as a constitutional system in that um, there's very few accountability mechanisms that are built in for Commonwealth power. You know, there's public lawyers who visit my law school and come to Australia and they talk about Australian sovereignty as an extreme form of parliamentary sovereignty in that everything and anything from integrity commissions to bills of rights or charters of rights um, are viewed in an in in antagonistic way because it constrains, viewed as constraining the power of the, the federal parliament and that's viewed as a, as a negative thing. Um, but most constitutions have some kind of check and balance on their um, parliamentary power. And so I think that's also an interesting thing about Australia is extreme form of parliamentary sovereignty. Yeah, uh, and, and the Constitution, uh, I mean, my reading of it appears that the, the High Court of Australia does have some role to play in terms of interpreting the, the what the Constitution actually means and, and, and declaring um, laws to be um, unconstitutional, but other than that, there's not, there's not much uh, oversight there uh, in terms of change, is that would that be a fair uh, uh, assessment? Yeah, I think it is a fair assessment. So, Megan, I, I wonder if uh, you know one measure of the, I guess, the success of uh, a constitutional arrangement is the stability uh, of, for example, um, uh, parliament, um, the you know the governance of the country. Um, Australia's had a uh, 120 years uh, since uh, the constitution was enacted, and uh, for the for the larger part, it seems to have had a, a reasonably stable um, produced a reasonably stable political system. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's 
Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think by and large it's created a stable system and I think by and large it has a lot to do with the Constitution. But, I mean, obviously I'm going to caveat with a but. Yes. I mean, obviously there are provisions in there such as Section 5126, the racist style, that means that Aboriginal people can be singled out for adverse treatment by the Commonwealth on the basis of their race. And that's not a nice thing to have in the Constitution and it has a very detrimental impact upon Aboriginal communities, including the Native Title Act amendments, um, which diminished Aboriginal Native Title to a bundle of rights and, and, and gave upgraded you know, pastoral leases to freehold. I mean, the, the consequences of that provision has been pretty dire in terms of our community. So, yes, it's true it's created a relative sense of the rule of law and it's a robust framework that has allowed for a pretty decent distribution of power between the state and, and the federal government, keeping in mind that the High Court over the course of the century has very much weakened state powers in favour of the Commonwealth. But, you know, it, it is a system that has worked in terms of that distribution between the central government and its provincial government. So, so, so yes, um, a kind of one assessment is yes, but another is, you know, there are things in the Constitution that have actually really been quite destructive on people's lives and rights. Now, the Constitution can be changed. Um, I mean, there's been 19 referendums since um, 1906, uh, but only eight changes. But there is, a, there is a mechanism to change the Constitution, is there? Yeah, um, there's a provision in the Australian Constitution, Section 128, that sets out the rules in which the text can be changed um, and how that change can be approved. Um, um, so there is a mechanism. Um, it's just it's not engaged very often, and when it does, it hasn't been very successful. Yeah. Okay, so it's probably something that um, uh, in itself needs some area of reform. Look, can we can we wind the clock back uh, historically and and look at how we've got to 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 what you've just very clearly uh, articulated and described the constitutional arrangements, um, which is great. I, I think a lot of the listeners will appreciate that understanding of of where we are at the moment. But can we go back to how we've got here? Um, and then, and then we'll move on to to where we may be, you know, going in the future. So uh, Australia um, uh, wasn't discovered um, uh, by the, the Europeans, who were very quick to say that they did discover it. Um, in fact, when they arrived, there was already um, uh, a, 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 a large number of people living in Australia in the Torres, in the Torres Strait. Uh, and and their ancestors had been living there for quite some time. Now, um, it's it's my understanding that science has proven beyond any doubt that the the, the First Nation of Australia had been in occupation uh, on the continent and the, the Torres Strait Islands for for some forty thousand years. Is that is, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a bit above 60,000. I mean, one of the most recent pieces in Nature magazine, which um, I'm not a scientist, mm. of course, but which um, 
we've utilised and a lot of the Uluru work is um, is that it's well over sixty thousand years. But but yes, and we we obviously reference that in the Uluru statement from the heart as as well in terms of you know the science recognising just how long um, Aboriginal people have lived here on this continent. Mm. And then, you know, of course, there's, a, I guess, a little bit of a history lesson. Um, you know, in the 1770s, um, uh, Captain Cook, who uh, had a, an assignment to go off and discover the great southern continent, um, happened to come across uh, New Zealand, which was also um, uh, already occupied by uh, a group of people uh, who had, had been there for hundreds of years, uh, came across Australia uh, and... Um, you know, discovered it to the extent that it wasn't known to the British Empire at that point in time. Um, what happened then um, from from that point? Yeah, so um, it's a bit. I mean, obviously, it's, it's a bit messy. This this story, nobody's quite sure. Obviously, what what did happen? I mean, what we know is that. Um, the Crown or the British Empire, when it did expand, had approaches uh, to occupying another continent. Um, and, you know, by and large, they deployed one of three kind of theories, I suppose. Uh, they had a theory of um, settlement, a theory of conquest, and a theory of session. And those three theories kind of influenced how the British expanded um, and, and colonised countries. Um, so, you know, it's incontrovertible that when the British arrived, the continent was occupied by um, Aboriginal people. But that, 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 the legal justification doesn't kind of just sit there. Um, so, so when the British did arrive, there were Aboriginal people here. Um, but they didn't own it in a way that the British recognised ownership or property ownership. Um, so while Aboriginal people were present and living on the land, they didn't possess it in the way that the British saw possession in terms of property rights. Um, so one argument in that whole theory is that you know if you're not cultivating the land, so if agriculture is not visibly or physically in play, and it's not required as being possessed. Um, and so, so the way in which the territory is claimed um, is important because of the, of the implications then of the reception of British law or, or not the reception of British law. So in relation to settlement, which ultimately the High Court kind of settles on, um, even though it has an each-way bet in the Marbo decision, settlement occurs when the land deserted, you know, and what they call uncultivated. They're not possessed in the way that they, the British, British saw it to be possessed, um, and/or inhabited by kind of backward people. Um, backward people being the language that they use, not the language that I'm using. And then the theory of conquest is about forcible invasion of an occupied land. And then, so Australia, when you're growing up as a kid, it's, you know, you the history is really imbued with this idea that Aboriginal people didn't fight back, you know, um, there was no there was no war. Um, and then there's the theory of session, that means, you know, um, 
if Indigenous populations are there, then there's a treaty that is entered into over what is occupied land. Um, and and so, you know, that was really... I mean, still to this day, it's not really resolved because I don't think the Mabo court really resolved it properly for anyone. But, um, but the key thing for us as Aboriginal people in Australia, the key thing for Australia's kind of constitutional citizens uh, a constitutional system um, is that settlement was really applied because they said no one was here even though people were here and therefore the British laws applied automatically um, and yeah I mean that, that, that's, that's the legal theory of what happened I mean the, in reality what happened as I said at the outset was very very messy um, you had the, the early invasion um, and at Uluru, out at the Rock, we made a decision that from now on we would all call it invasion. We weren't going to use the other language. Um, and as Australian historians are now writing, the, the frontier wars broke out very quickly, very, very quickly. Um, and, and they extended for a very long period um, from 1788, right up until the late last kind of frontier war in the 18, I think late 1800s. Um, I think the last massacre, major massacre, was 1930s. Um, so that that's that's effectively what happened, but we don't have a really clear and settled national narrative about what happened. Yeah, I, look, I I think the reality is that in the in the late 18th century, um. The British Empire was expanding, and it was sending out uh, uh, na- often naval ships um, uh, to explore, to acquire new territories and lands. Um, that that's what was what was going on. I mean, I, I, I don't think anyone can argue with that. And the, the question is, well, what happened when they arrived in Australia and, and New Zealand? And um, uh, you know, the big fear of the British was that they would uh, that their competitors um, and, and enemies uh, would beat them to it. You know, whether that was the the French or the Spanish or the Dutch. Um, because you know, new lands uh, would have resources, and resources would add to the uh, the, the wealth of of the empire, and, it, and and that's exactly what happened when the British arrived in Australia and New Zealand. One of the first things they set about doing is working out what the resources were there and sending word back to the motherland to say, you know, there's forests, there's um, there's minerals, um, uh, there's uh, Land that can be um, you can you can grow stuff on, etc. Uh, then they had the uh, the issue of what to do with if there happens to be an indigenous people there. And what doesn't seem clear is that the British Empire had a, a, a an actual clear policy uh, that we can look back on to say this is what they were supposed to do because they handled. Uh, colonialism um, in quite an inconsistent way, and and I mean the the, the best examples possibly the relationship between the British Crown and uh, the Aboriginal people of Australia, and the relationship between the British Crown and the the the, the Maoris here in New Zealand. Um, it, quite a different experience, um, but doesn't help from uh, working out um, uh, what 
constitutional arrangements should be um, put in place, particularly when, for example, uh, the Aboriginal people and the British Crown don't have a treaty, um, whereas there is one um, uh, in New Zealand, all but the fact that the, the two uh, versions, um, there's, a, there's a massive inconsistency in them, uh, which I'll come back to later with you because I'm very interested in uh, the concept um, from the Illuru Statement from the Heart um, of this concept of uh, uh, Makarata. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Yep, yep, you're yeah, right. which is um, which is a you know word for treaty or agreement making. Um, but look, let's let's move before we move on to the Uluru statement from the heart. You, you've mentioned Mabo, um, and it's it's kind of timely. I mean, uh, earlier in the month, um, the Mabo decision had its thirtieth um, anniversary um, because it was uh, it was handed down on the third of uh, June. Uh, 1992, uh, was a full court decision of the Australian court um, and uh, the lead seminal judgment was was written by Justice uh, Sir Gerard uh, Brennan, who, who just unfortunately uh, passed away uh, at the beginning of the month. Um, so, you know, that's a, a sad but uh, relevant factor of, of, of linking it together about the Mabo decision. But c- what can you tell us was the issue at the heart of that decision that the the High Court of Australia were being asked to to resolve? Um, they're really being asked to recognise Aboriginal title, really native title. Um, that was that was the issue um, at hand. They were being asked to recognise that Aboriginal title had survived the um, arrival of the British and the reception of British law um, in Australia and that's effectively um, that's effectively what they did the 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 plurality did in um, in the Mabo decision Can you um, I I hate using Latin but can you um, you know tell us uh, in that decision, there was the concept of terra nullis. Um, what 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 did that mean? What was the relevance of that? Oh, it's just a Latin term that means land belonging to no one. Um, it wasn't something that was necessarily used at the time, but it was something that the High Court used to describe what had happened. Yeah, um, at first contact. So was the was, was the argument be well one of the arguments being led um, to deny uh, Ab- Aboriginal rights to land was uh, was this an argument that um, uh, no no one owned the, the land at the time when uh, the British arrived and therefore they could claim it for themselves is that how, how the argument went? I mean I think the doctrine of terra nullius effectively means that when you see something that you are able to exercise or exert ownership over it because it doesn't belong to anyone. Mm. And that's effectively what Terranolis meant at that time in the kind of 17th and 18th century, um, that you have ownership by seizing something that no one owns. And Terranolis, I suppose, as a doctrine, gave legitimacy to that um, um, which, of course, meant that um, British laws 
you know, applied to that continent without any regard for the legal systems that already existed in that place. And I, I suppose the decision of the High Court in, um, in the Mabo decision um, was that, the, you know, the common law of Australia should recognise the laws and customs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And that's why from the Mabo decision, uh, the Native Title Act was drafted and passed through legislation and pro provided a mechanism in which people could have those Native Title rights recognised. But, um, but that particular doctrine, although wrongly applied to Australia um, and not necessarily applied to Australia at the time, but something that the High Court used, um, you know, was one to, to just to recognise that actually the, the traditional laws and customs that developed over millennia exist um, and at the centre, the, 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 the land, sorry, is at the centre of that culture and those customs and those traditions and um, and that and that um, there needed to be a way in which evidence of those customs and laws and traditions can be offered up as a kind of recognition of, of those laws. But, uh, I mean, effectively, Terra Nullius just justified the dispossession of the land um, as being legitimate because um, they said it belonged to no one. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, Justice Brennan, as he was then, I mean, he went on, uh, I think a couple of years later, to become the, the, the Chief Justice. Um, he uh, seemed to, in the decision, um, to draw in part um, to, from, from international law that, um, you know, the common law um, uh, should uh, develop in a way that's consistent with international law, particularly around uh, when international law declares the existence of universal human rights. And, and one of those rights is for, um, you know, people, you know, the indigenous inhabitants on a, on a settled colony to occupy their own traditional lands. Um, and, you know, it seemed to me um, he was wanting to draw upon international law as authority to say um, uh, the way in which indigenous people have been treated, um, or at least with respect to their ability to occupy their own traditional lands, um, was inconsistent with with international declarations on on universal human rights. Is, is that is that what you took from the judgment? Yeah, no. I mean, I think there was a drawing upon international law for that purpose. Mm. Um, I mean, I think. I think it's fair to say, though, that the High Court is part of problems in that judgment are part of why we get trying to seek some sort of settlement, right? Mm. Because, because the High Court kind of unsatisfactorily managed this by saying or adopting a kind of conquered, conquered settlement distinction. Um, so it assimilated the rules of settlement with the rules for a conquered colony to the extent of the rights and interests in the land, and and then you know then basically said it's not for the courts to resolve the rest of it, um, and so and so kind of left all of this open. So it, it's an important it's an important judgment in terms of what it is, whether the actual legislative 
implementation of Mabo has been satisfactory for Aboriginal people is another question. I think that's also open for contestation. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it was an important judgment in that they did draw upon, as his court did in many, many judgments during this time, mm. did draw upon international law and international human rights law as really important parts of... Um, important parts of the Australian legal system, but in particular the, the common law. He did say, I just before we move off, Marbo, um, I'll just give this quote because I, I do think it really um, expands and uh, sets out clearly where I think you know his thinking was when he said that there can be no worse human indignity to the first inhabitants of this continent than to refuse to acknowledge their existence. And and, and that, to a large extent, um, sums up the absolute factual fallacy that it had existed, um, uh, at least right up to that point. But it must have given um, the Aboriginal people back in, at least back in 1992, some hope that, that finally there was some recognition that um, they were the first inhabitants and um, and, and any attempt to, uh, to to pretend that they didn't exist uh, was just absolutely offensive and ludicrous. I mean, is, did, did, was that part of the effect when the, the judgment came out? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's... That... That, that is the essence of it, isn't it? Non-recognition. Yeah, absolutely. Look, can we move on to the Illaroo Statement from the Heart? Uh, it's just had its fifth uh, uh, anniversary. It was uh, part of, um, in 2017, a national constitutional convention uh, coming from all points of the southern sky to, to make the statement. Um, what is the statement? Uh, how did it occur? And uh, what can you tell us about it? Yeah, so the Uluru Statement from the Heart is um, a culmination of about 11-year process to get the Australian people to a referendum on recognition. Um, one of the key things, though, that hadn't or hadn't been worked out until the Uluru Statement from the Heart was um, what form of recognition do Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people want? And so the Uluru Statement came from a three-year process where, you know, we, I was involved in it, I was head of a subcommittee that designed the Uluru framework, the Uluru dialogue framework, and, and the question was, what is meaningful constitutional uh, recognition to First Nations peoples? And we ran a series of constitutional First Nations dialogues across the continent um, to, to get that answer from people. And, um, and, the law reform proposals on the table were all constitutional except for treaty, um, but the primary reform people chose as being meaningful to them was a voice to parliament. Um, and so the Uluru Statement sets out a logic to the Australian people. It's, a, it's an invitation, it's a, it's a statement to the Australian people as to why we want constitutional change and why we want recognition of a voice. So instead of inviting Prime Minister Turnbull to the rock and handing him a bar petition um, with the Uluru Statement in it, um, we decided we would 
dump that idea and instead read it out at the rock to Australians. And that's what the Uluru Statement is. It's a kind of, I mean, there's many ways you can describe it. It's a pitch to the Australian people. It's a heartfelt letter to the Australian people. It's basically blackfellas at the rock cutting through all of the the media and the politicians and everyone are speaking straight to the down the camera to the Australian people and saying, look, we have never had any constitutional empowerment um, and we would like you to help us change the constitution to get this reform up and this is why we think it is needed. Um, and so the, the Uluru Statement from the Heart is one page of about 18 pages. It's an 18-page document that includes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history of Australia. So that's where the truth-telling component comes from. So it's the Aboriginal version of Australian history. And it also has three pages that explains the legal reforms. What is a voice to Parliament? Why is it, why is it the, the number one constitutional amendment on the table? And then it explains treaty and then it explains truth-telling. So, you know, since the early 1800s during colonial government periods, we have been arguing for some sort of substantive way to participate in the democratic life of the state. Um, reserve seats and designated seats have never been that prominent, and that's partly because Australian parliamentarians represent their electorates and they represent their parties. They don't represent the First Nations people of the nation. Um, and we say that the power imbalance is so significant and acute in this nation that you cannot even begin to contemplate treaty making or agreement making until we have we have some sort of voice anchored in the constitution. Um, and this kind of strategy was discussed and debated in the thirteen dialogues that led to the major meeting out at the Rock. Um, we now have commitment five years later from the current and new Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to run a referendum. Um, on a voice to parliament, and, and so that's where we are in terms of the Uluru Statement from the heart. Okay, and look, quite central to that is um, is, is, is the concept of sovereignty. Um, is, is that correct? So sovereignty is um, a really important um, issue for our people in terms of recognition of it. Um, the what we know from the work that we've done over 11 years, which is how long it's taken to get here, is that um, there is no form of constitutional recognition under this constitution that can foreclose on Aboriginal claims to sovereignty. Um, we have said our sovereignty has never been ceded since 1788. We said that in 1901 when the Federation was formed, we said that in 1967 when we were um, included within the power of the federal parliament to make laws and the counting of the census. Um, Mabo didn't affect that sovereignty and this constitutional reform won't. What we do say in the Uluru Statement is that our sovereignty coexists with the Crown yeah, can I just, um, I just for the listeners, I just want to read one part out from the statement. I mean, it's it's beautifully written, um, and I'd encourage anyone listening um, to just even if you just Google for the Uluru statement from the heart, you'll find it. I mean, the web the website is 
is, is fantastic. But from um, you know part of the statement, I'll just read this one part out. It goes, we seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and to take a rightful place in our own country. When we have the power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. I mean, from an aspirational point of view, um, uh, that's, that, 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 is, that, that is very moving. Yeah, it is. It's a very moving statement, a really powerful it is, statement. It, it, it's very powerful, and, it, and it's, it's one that really sets stage for Australia to embrace that because to, to, to give that statement some actual meaning. Um, now, uh, I mentioned before the, this concept of uh, Makarata and, and the, the Makarata Commission. Can you, can you tell us about Ma, uh, Makarata and, and the Makarata Con- Commission? Yeah, sure. Makarata is a your new term from the Gumach clan in the Northern Territory. Um, it was a name that was given by Gullory and Apingu to the treaty movement in the 70s, and it's based on a on a dispute resolution ceremony in um, the Gumach clan, which is to do with the coming together after struggle, which is why the word Makarada is used, the coming together of a, after a struggle. Um, the Makarata Commission is effectively just a commission that um, First Nations people's hope will be set up after a voice referendum is successful, and that commission's work will be to fast-track land rights and native title agreements and help negotiate treaties or agreements across the continent with nations. Um, and so, you know, during the course of the dialogues, what we heard was many communities said they did not have the resources um, to enter into treaties with the state. Um, many said that after native title and destruction in communities in terms of the native title process, Um, that has torn many communities apart. Um, There are a lot of concerns too that nations can't negotiate treaties until they learn to speak with each other effectively. People spoke more about dispute resolution um, services in their communities than they did treaties. And so the Makarata Commission is intended to be that commission that is set up after the voice referendum to facilitate that and truth-telling. Um, I don't know who called it voice treaty truth. That's a colloquial term. The, the term is voice Makarata. And Makarata is the process that begins after after voice, after the Australian people have pressed play on this piece of work in a successful referendum. Truth-telling, um, I think got hijacked a bit by academics and elites and people after the Uluru process. People assumed it would be a truth commission, but truth-telling was not envisaged to be a truth commission by the people who participated in the dialogue. The view was that there's a lot of truth-telling that happens in the nation now um, and that groups would decide when aspects or elements of that truth 
were to be filtered upwards to some sort of Makarata commission, um, but people were adamant it needed to be bottom up, so driven by communities, by individual nations, and not by some centralised body that decides what truth commission looks like. And I think that's an important point because we've, I think, too much in the Australian context now, we're conflating transitional justice theory and practice which is not an Aboriginal thing, and they're conflating it with um, unfinished business um, and the, the work that needs to be done in Australia to get on the road to reconciliation or whatever it is that we're pursuing as a people. Um, people in the dialogues also said reconciliation was the wrong word. Um, but that, that's in essence what the Makarata Commission is. It's meant to flow on from the work of the voice. Um, and, and part of the reason for that is the threshold question of a treaty is who do you treaty with? And a big part of the creation of the voice is to work out what that means. Okay, so it, it sounds to me that there is a, a lot of work to be done before uh, the, the Makarata Commission uh, will, will come into existence, if at all. And if if I'm understanding you right, uh, Megan, one of the things that's going to have to happen is there's going to need to be a referendum. Yeah, there needs to be a referendum on a voice. I mean, on the Makarata Commission, Linda Burney has, you know, took it to the election of policy. So, you know, I I wouldn't, you know, there there is a lot of work to be done on it, but um, once the referendum's successful, then they can work towards getting that up. Um, so, but currently the work is toward the referendum, yes. Okay. Look, can I ask, the the Illaru uh, statement from the heart, how has that been received in terms of the, the, the wider populace in Australia? How, what's been the feedback you've received? So it's been five years since it was issued. And, and I mean, our testing of, of the Australian sentiment is no different to political parties. Um, so it's been polled over five years, and it it never sits in negative territory. It always sits in positive territory, usually around the 58, 59, 60 percent. Sometimes it gets higher depending on the what what the issue du jour is. So during the Black Lives Matter period, um, the yes vote went up, and so did the undecideds move to the yes vote, and we even had a lot of rusted no voters move to the undecideds. So it really just depends on where you're sitting in a political cycle as to how it polls. But prior to there being any focus on it and prior to there being any campaign for it, um, it's polled better than any other proposal for change in Australia for First Nations people. Okay, so when, I mean, is is it something that we can expect that uh, a formal request for a referendum will be presented to the federal parliament? Is that something that we can expect? Yes, the Albanese government expects to have a referendum sometime in the, by the next year or the year after. Um, Attorney generals have started hiring lawyers for the voice section of the Office of Constitutional Law. Um, they're already already looking at language and wording and um, timing, so it will be presented to the Australian people. I don't have the exact date. Mm, okay. Well, I mean, it's it's certainly something that also can have uh, relevance um, uh, to to the people of New Zealand, there is a, a concept, a Maori concept of uh, Rangatiratanga, uh, which is Maori sovereignty. And 
What, how that comes about is that in uh, 1840, there were two versions of the Treaty of Waitangi. There was the English version, which made it very clear that uh, the treaty, the, all the tribes that signed, and, and just bearing in mind two of them didn't sign, um, but all the tribes that signed were became citizens of um, of the British Empire and conceded their sovereignty. Uh, the the Maori version uh, didn't, and uh, it um, provided for sovereignty there. So it may be that what happens in Australia may um, provide um, you know further impetus uh, or aspiration for the Indigenous people of New Zealand to re-look at the issue of their voice within the constitutional setting that exists in in New Zealand. So look, certainly um, what Abenisi and his government does, I mean, this is going to be something that will possibly have wider ranging, um, far reaching um, uh, implications, and it's certainly going to be something that will be exciting. Professor Megan Davis, look, thank you for joining me on the on the podcast, uh, the Law Down Under podcast. This has been a great privilege um, to have you on the podcast. Uh, absolutely fascinating area uh, of constitutional future potential reform. Uh, there seems to be a significant amount of work that's going to need to be undertaken between uh, between now and then. And I, I want to congratulate you and, and, and uh, of course, all the others that have been working very hard on the likes of the uh, Uluru Statement from the Heart. And, and I do, do wish you all the best with that. So thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under. <laughs>